Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker this evening was ordained in 1996 when he finished his Master of Arts degree at the Angelicum in Rome. He has served as parochial vicar at several parishes in the Diocese of Arlington. He currently serves as the Episcopal Vicar for Clergy, the Director of the Permanent Diaconate Program, and Pastor of St. James Parish in Falls Church, Virginia. He is the author of That Nothing May Be Lost, Reflections on Catholic Doctrine and Devotion, and editor of Sermons in Times of Crisis, 12 Homilies to Stir Your Soul. Father Scalia is a member of the Institute's Board of Advisors and has given numerous extremely popular lectures for us. We are so pleased to be able to welcome back such a wonderful priest and great friend of the Institute of Catholic Culture. Please join me in welcoming Father Paul Scalia. Welcome, Father. Can I just add one word to that? Everybody should know that if it were not for Father Scalia, the Institute of Catholic Culture would not exist today. So we thank you, Father, for your presence here with us. Thank you. Let's, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh my God, relying on your almighty power and your infant love and promises, we hope to obtain the forgiveness of sins, the help of thy grace, and life everlasting through the merits of Christ, our Lord and Redeemer. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So the opening prayer, I just cheated. I did the uh, standard act of hope. Uh, well, we all know the act of contrition, or at least we should. There's also the act of faith, hope, and, and love. And uh, I'll get to the importance of praying the act of hope uh, a little later on. But I want to begin with a couple of quotes. First, from Space Salvi by Pope Benedict XV. 16th, sorry. The present-day crisis of faith is a crisis of Christian hope. And next, I want to uh, quote uh, from G.K. Chesterton uh, from uh, Ballad of the White Horse, which is a great book to, to read in times of complete hopelessness. So, uh, and these are um, Chesterton's imagined words of Our Lady, and she is speaking uh, to encourage the Christian soldiers. And she says, as she's, she's speaking to King Alfred, who's facing the Danes who have invaded. She says, I tell you not for your comfort, yea, not for your desire, save that the sky grows darker yet and the sea rises higher. Night shall be thrice night over you and heaven an iron cope. Do you have joy without a cause, yea, faith without a hope? So uh, those are good words to kind of keep in mind, and the entire, the entire poem is a good thing to keep in mind during trying times, during times where there seems to be no cause for hope, and uh, hope seems to be both uh, essential and hard to come by. And so what we want to do this evening is understand uh, the theological virtue of hope and uh, why it is necessary now and how we can cultivate it. Uh, and the need for hope is not just obviously for today, it's for, for every time. But uh, I think because of the challenges before us as a nation and certainly as a church, uh, the, the virtue of hope is, is, is even more important. But as always, we need to begin by making some distinctions. Uh, so first, we're talking about the virtue of hope, right? The virtue. There is such a thing as, as a, 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 an emotion or what Thomas would call the passion of hope. Um, and that's a very important thing, actually. And that, that's, that, that's the passion or the, the passion of the soul that um, 
sort of like spurs you on to makes you, you know, confident that you can accomplish something difficult. Uh, and it's and it's good in its place, right? When it's out of its place, it looks ridiculous, right? A man should know his limits, right? So I I do not hope, I don't have the 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 feeling of hope as regards golf. I know that that, that that it cannot be reached. It's unattainable for me, the game of golf. Okay, so, but but uh, that, that emotion of hope in its proper place is very good. And actually, it can be very helpful to the virtue of hope. And uh, we'll talk about that a little, a little later. But I want to make the distinction uh, immediately between the virtue of hope, which we'll be talking about, and the way most people use the word hope. So um, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow, or I hope I get an A on my test, things like that. Well, okay, that's not, we're not talking about the theological virtue of hope in, that, in those cases. That's just, it might be optimism, it might be the, the emotion of hope, but it's certainly not the virtue. So first, we are talking about a virtue. What is a virtue? A virtue is, as the Catechism says, an habitual and firm disposition to do the good. It is something that is habitual. And so it's it, it's something abiding in us, something that is not just passing as emotions are passing. It is something that, that we have cultivated uh, or that has been placed in us. Uh, it is habitual and firm. So a virtue, think of it as a strength of the soul or a, soul or a, a spiritual muscle. So very different from an emotion. So we're talking about a virtue, not an emotion. The next distinction, we are talking about a theological virtue. Uh, there are, as you know, different kinds of virtues. And one of the most important distinctions is between the natural virtues that we find in the pagan world, for example. I mean, the ancient pagan world. We don't find hardly any virtues in the modern pagan world. But anyway, the ancient pagan world had, uh, you know, the virtues of patience and justice and temperance and courage. We see those, right? And those are natural virtues. We can cultivate those. You don't need grace uh, in order to cultivate those. Uh, uh, man, even as a fallen creature, has some, some capacity to do that. But then there are other virtues that are not cultivated by us. We don't have the capacity to do that. They are virtues that are infused into the soul. We call these the theological virtues. Of course, they are faith, hope, and charity. And they are theological in two senses. First, because God gives them. You know, I, I don't attain them. I don't cultivate them. Um, I don't produce them in any way. It is God who places them in the soul, and he does that at baptism. So anyone who's baptized can't say, oh, I don't have, I don't have the virtue of faith. Well, actually, you do. You probably just need to, you know, dust it off and, you know, uh, get it working again. But the grace has been given uh, to, to believe, uh, and so also with hope, with hope and charity. And these virtues are theological in another sense, because they are, um, their object is divine. Uh, it is not anything in this world. So when we say, um, you know, the children are our hope, well, with all due respect to your children, um, they are not, okay, at least not in the theological sense, right? Uh, uh, our, we hope in God, and uh, he is the object of the hope. So he's both the author of it and the object of it, but he has infused it into us. And I love that, that word, that English word, word infused it, uh, from the Latin, infundere, it, it is poured into us. You know, you got these fancy, uh, uh, like, olive oils, like, you know, infused with this or that, right? Um, and so think that we've been infused with this grace, this capacity uh, by God to go to God. So we, we, we hope uh, by God and for God. And um, and so the theological virtues always they always focus on God. He's always their object. So, but in different ways, right? So faith has God as the object as regards His truth, hope as regards His promises and rewards, and love as well just God Himself because He is perfectly lovable. Um, so let me go back to G.K. Chesterton here. 
And uh, I, um, I want to read a passage from, uh, from the book Heretics. It's, it's better than it sounds, right? Um, and, uh, but he, he's making the distinction between the natural, what he calls pagan virtues, and then um, the virtues of Christianity or the virtues of grace, as, as he calls them. Um, and he makes the point that the pagan or the rational virtues are entirely reasonable. And faith, hope, and charity are unreasonable. Okay, so what does he mean by that? He says, each one of these Christian virtues involves a paradox in its own nature. And this is not true of the typically pagan or rationalist virtues. Justice, for example, consists in finding out a certain thing due to a certain man and giving it to him. Very reasonable. Temperance consists in finding out the proper limit of a particular indulgence and adhering to it. Very reasonable. But charity means pardoning what is unpardonable, or it is no virtue at all. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless, or it is no virtue at all. And faith means believing the incredible, or it is no virtue at all. For practical purposes, it is at the hopeless moment that we require the hopeful man, and the virtue does not exist at all or begins to exist at that moment. Exactly at the instant when hope ceases to be reasonable, it begins to be useful. So in, in effect, we don't really need hope when everything's going well, right? Um, we, we, we need hope when, well, thing, thing, things are, are not going well. That's when, we, that's when it shows itself the most. Obviously, we need it at all times, but that's when it shows itself the most. Before we leave the consideration of the theological virtues, I really want to emphasize this point of the object, uh, because when people talk about faith, hope, and, and charity, or faith, hope, and love, they do so in vague ways, right? Uh, and even believers do this, and it's careless. So you say, well, you just have to have faith. Well, in what? <laughs> you know, in whom? Uh, it's not enough to say we have faith. Faith has an object, and so also with hope. It's not enough to say, well, just, you, know, you have to hope or we have to be hopeful. Well, why? Uh, what should I hope for? Or in, in whom should I hope? There, there always has to be that object. And if there's not that object, then it, it very, very quickly becomes just sentimentalism. It very, very quickly becomes uh, just you know optimism, uh, just an emotion. So uh, that's just by way of some distinctions. Now, why is it that we need hope? And, and it, we always need it, not just when things are going poorly, we're more conscious of it then. Um, but the reason we're more conscious of it then is because when things are going more, when things are going poorly, then we are more aware that we are not meant for this world, right? We feel, we, we feel sort of a conflict between ourselves and this world that this is not really home. And what it calls to our attention is that what, what Joseph Pieper, the great Thomistic uh, philosopher, what he calls the becomingness of the creature, that we are created in order to become. Uh, this is true for Adam and Eve. They weren't just like created and given sanctifying grace and then said, okay, that's good. Just stay the way you are. They were meant to grow, as, as Father Hezekiah was saying beforehand. They're, they're meant to return Re return to God this praise. They, there was a becomingness. They were, they were supposed to, to develop and grow uh, and journey, in effect. And the same is true for every single one of us. We are created, sort of, we're, we're not, when we're created, we're sort of launched, aren't we? Um, we? And so we have that purpose. So the Catechism says this, paragraph 1818, the virtue of hope responds to the aspiration to happiness which God has placed in the heart of every man. We all want to be happy, and we're all sort of aspiring to that. Hope is, is the response to that aspiration. It, it is sort of the confidence that we will actually attain happiness. Basically, and, and uh, Pope Benedict XVI, in um, his encyclical, Space Salvi, he, he basically makes a point that to hope means to have a future. And, and that's why um, Viktor Frankl's book, uh, 
uh, Man's Search for Meaning, which, which is, gives a lot of the details about his time in Auschwitz, talks about you know, those who survived Auschwitz were, were people who, who had a purpose, who knew that they were created for a purpose, and, and, and hope was responding to that. Hope was, was, was that the gift that sort of linked in with that, with that aspiration. And so hope begins with the realization that we've been created for some purpose that we haven't yet reached. We've already been created for this, but we've not yet reached it. Uh, and so, as I'll talk about in a little bit, we have to hold on to both of these things, the already and the not yet. We have to keep them uh, keep them uh, in, in two hands, right? Uh, and if we let one of them go, then we cease to hope, as I'll talk about later. Theologically, uh, or in the, in, the, in the tradition of the church, this is called the status viatoris, which is the state of journeying or the wayfarer, as it, you know, an, an older translation would have it. It this 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 process of becoming, or we're, we're on a journey. Now, having said that, when talking about the status viatoris, the, the state of journeying, I want to acknowledge that the whole concept or notion of a journey has been trivialized uh, in recent years. Uh, because it's been robbed of its um, most important characteristic, which is a destination, right? What, what, you, you, you've heard um, the saying, it's not the destination, it's the journey that counts, okay? Well, that's stupid, okay? I mean, to put it bluntly, because what's the purpose of the journey if there is no destination? Why? <laughs> you know, the, 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 the longest journey doesn't begin with a single step. It begins with a destination, I'm not going to go out my door unless I have a destination. What's the purpose? So um, we want to go back to sort of the original understanding of the Christian journey of, of, of us as wayfarers, as, as on a pilgrimage. Uh, our baptismal font at, uh, here at St. James has, uh, as is common, it has the, the, the scallop shell on, on, on the side of it which is the symbol of the pilgrim, which comes, uh, uh, by the way, from St. James. Uh, but the, the symbol of the pilgrim, because what does baptism do? Baptism is the step out the door on pilgrimage to heaven. It is the beginning of the journey, because now eternal life has been infused into that soul. It's already there, not yet complete. And so we have to always keep, keep a sense of, of, of this journey but um, unlike, I think, many secular thinkers, when we think of a journey, we are also certain of a destination. So let's just talk a little bit more of these two elements, right? And so the, these two things, thinking of it as, uh, I don't know, maybe the hands on the steering wheel or, or on the reins of a horse. I've never ridden a horse, so I don't know what that's like. But, but anyway, keeping already and not yet. These are the two sort of uh, things about hope. And, and they're in a tension, right? You know, we always think of tension as bad, right? And we want to reduce all tension. Well, actually, tension can sometimes be good, can't it? It might, it might bring a conversation to, to an important point and actually lead to a resolution. Uh, tension between a tire and the road is pretty darn good. And if you don't have it, uh, you'll, you'll regret it, right? And so tension... Is, is something that, that's very important at times. This tension uh, between the already and not yet uh, can, can be good. In, in fact, it's essential. If we don't hold these two things together, then we will cease to hope. Saint Cyril of Alexandria says this, those who have a sure hope guaranteed by the Spirit that they will rise again, lay hold of what lies in the future as though it were already present. And that, that's a great description of hope. We're laying hold of something in the future. We're not in the future yet, but we're laying hold of it as if it's already present. Another image that, that gets to this is from Hebrews, Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Now, this is a very odd um, image, and I, I'm afraid uh, the author might be mixing some metaphors here. 
but um, I mean the human author. Uh, the uh, but it's it's actually it's it's very good. The, the sort of the the seeming contradiction here is is wonderful for understanding this point. So hope is a steadfast anchor of the soul. So what is what does an anchor do? An anchor it stabilizes you, right? It makes a ship steadfast. You're not going anywhere. You might drift a little bit, but you're not going anywhere. You're anchored. Okay, you're 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 stable and sure and certain. Okay, and so so that that is what hope is. At the same time, it says that this anchor uh, enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain, which is kind of a funny image. So this is an anchor that doesn't doesn't make you stable right here. This is an anchor that stabilizes you by you're, you're dropping anchor in heaven. That's what you're doing. And because you've dropped anchor in heaven, you're you're stable here. Uh, and and so this is this is a, a wonderfully paradoxical image. Um, so hope is an anchor, and that's in Christian um, iconography. That's the traditional image um, of of hope is, is the anchor, and it's because of this passage. And so think of th this is an anchor that shifts our weight out of this world to heaven. And so there's something sure and certain about it. We're already there because we're anchored there, but we're not yet there. And so we're kind of, you know, waiting for that. And so the hopeful person doesn't, is not anchored in this world and doesn't look for fulfillment or, um, or happiness from the things of this world. Uh, the, the person who is hopeful, who is anchored in the next world and, and, and looks beyond the curtain uh, for, that, for the fulfillment that every heart desires. And, it, of course, it is Jesus who establishes this hope, right? And it's good to think of this as we approach the ascension, which is Thursday, even though observance in many places is shifted to Sunday. We'll leave it at that. Uh, because Jesus is the anchor. He goes into heaven. And as Father Hezekiah was talking about, he brings our human nature there. I, a lot of people think that when Christ ascended into heaven, he kind of like, you know, took off his human nature, left it behind and, and, and went. No, no we, we are already there in him. He is that anchor. And and we have to allow that anchor to to sort of draw us there, which gives it's a, it's a great way of understanding the certainty of hope. It's this anchor that draws us. I mean, if you've ever been a boat and, you know, you start drifting and, and the, the chain of the anchor goes goes tight, then you're, you're, you're being pulled back. That is the anchor that our Lord establishes for us in heaven. Okay, so let's get into the virtue a little more and how it works so, so that we can know how to live this. And I'm going to draw uh, the definition from um, uh, Father Jordan Oman, a uh, great Dominican uh, spiritual writer. He says, and bear with me with the just, just boring stuff, all right? We'll try to make it exciting. Hope is the theological virtue infused into the will by which we trust with complete certitude in the attainment of eternal life and the means necessary for reaching it, assisted by the omnipotent help of God. Okay, that's boring. Let's, let's try to kind of spice it up here a little bit. So first of all, the theological virtue. We, we, we've spoken about this. This is something that we do not produce, okay? And that's that's an, an essential thing to keep on. I, I'll, I'll mention in a little bit that a corresponding virtue to hope, a, a virtue that's necessary for hope, is humility. Because if, if we think that we're going to produce this virtue, then, then we will never actually hope. So we need to be humble enough to receive this. And what's the corresponding beatitude? It, it really would be blessed of the poor in spirit. You know, those who say, well, I have nothing to hope for. That, that's, what, that's what Our Lady is communicating to King Alfred. That you have no worldly hope whatsoever. You have no reason in this world to hope, but you should still hope. Okay? And so it's receiving that. So the theological virtue, it is essentially transcendent. Second, it is infused. We talked about that part, but uh, Jordan Owen makes a further specification infused into the will okay so it uh, so in order for us to live this virtue it takes an act of the will 
This is not something passive. It, God has, has placed this capacity within us, but we need to respond, right? And he, he's, given us, he's given us the grace to respond. And, and let's not fall into some semi-Pelagian thinking that God is waiting for us to turn to him before he gives us grace. No, he is at all times sort of trying to communicate his grace to us. Uh, so it's it's not as though we need to ask him and then he'll give it to us. No, he's all, always sort of taking that initiative. So infuse into the will, not the intellect, right? Because th- this is this is something that we have to choose, and 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 not just the emotions. So it is something deliberately done or chosen. Now a little more about this. Just because it's an act of the will and a theological virtue centered on uh, supernatural things doesn't mean that uh, our emotional disposition and attitude is unimportant, right? Uh, because we are we are an organic whole. Everything that you know, everything uh, affects everything else. So I used to think that a hopeful person can be, at the same time, tremendously pessimistic about the world. And that an optimistic person can lack hope. And I guess technically, in theory, that is true. However, in reality, um, we need what Pope Benedict calls lesser hopes, right? It's a, it's a beautiful lesser hopes, like little, little things we have in this, in this world, you know, that we hope for and, and, that we, and that we receive. We need those to bolster the higher ones, which is all to say, a complaining, griping attitude is not going to help our, that act of the will for supernatural hope. If we're complaining about everything that's going on, and there's plenty to complain about, but and if and if we're if we're tuning to tuning into all of the radio shows and all of the podcasts and all of the you know uh, the, the the videos that are just you know harping on how bad things are, we shouldn't we shouldn't expect that we will uh, grow in, in the virtue of hope. Okay. Because, because that, that sort of stuff just grinds down the gears. We don't want to be Pollyannas, but, but, but we do, but we do want to avoid sort of the complaining and the griping because that kind of hurts the capacity of the will, right. To, to, to respond to that initiative uh, of God. So it basically it's hard to have the supernatural virtue of hope if we've lost the supernatural outlook on what's going on, if we view everything going on, there's a lot of bad stuff going on. If we view it all in, in worldly terms, then we've lost the supernatural outlook and we're not going to be able to, to have this supernatural virtue. Remember, grace perfects nature. It doesn't cut against it. So the theological virtue infused into the will by which um, we trust with complete certitude, with complete certitude. Um, now, we have to be careful here. Our complete certitude is not in ourselves, it's in God. I'm completely certain about what he's done. So you see how faith has to precede hope. Um, and, and that's why we, you know, faith, hope, and love always go in that order, right? Because we, we need to know the truth about God, know what he has done, know who he is, and then that creates a desire, right? And then, But we have this certitude uh, that's built on faith. So the certitude is in God and what he has promised. So what is one aspect of original sin? Um, it, it's that Adam and Eve came to see God as a competitor. They didn't think that he was really interested in their good. And so, you know, they, they began to doubt him, right? And so growing in the virtue of hope means thinking, no, God really desires what is good for me. He is acting, he's at this very moment acting for my good. I was just joking with uh, another priest in the rectory. He was, we were talking about, about something coming up and he said, uh, he said, well, whatever God wants is good. And uh, he's a good Thomist. And, I, and I, I just said, are you sure about that? And, and uh, well, yes, he's sure. It's a, it's a theological certainty. <laughs> Whatever God wills is good. But for hope, we need to have, to cultivate that, that complete certitude 
right? We have to decultivate that trust that his will for us is good. Um, we know that, that, uh, that he will fulfill his promises, right? So our certitude is not in ourselves. It's in him. So we have complete certitude in the attainment of eternal life. It doesn't say complete certitude that I'm going to get that job uh, or that everything here is going to work out for the best. The economy is going to keep keep growing stronger or, you know, COVID's going to go away immediately. Uh, no, th this hope is not designed for that. Uh, we can have the, the, the emotion of hope for those things, but, but the theological virtue of hope doesn't focus on those. It looks beyond all of those to what is more important, the attainment of eternal life. This is why it's so important to, in, in prayer to meditate on heaven and, and, and what God has promised about heaven. You know, and, and you, can tell, you can tell that St. Paul thought about it a lot. Because it comes to conclusion, conclusion, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. He's like, well, but but it didn't stop him for, um, from striving for it because he just he, he knew these promises. So in order for us to cultivate this virtue, we should think about what God has promised. Go, go, go to 1 John. Um, we're God's children now. What we shall later be has not yet come to light. <laughs> now, being God's children, that's already pretty good, isn't it? In fact, that whole verse, that's a great summary of hope. We are God's children now. Boom, that's, we are already this. What we shall later be, like the full glory that we're going to have, we, we don't know what that's going to be, but if we're already his children, we're pretty confident it's going to be good, right? So, hoping not just in the attainment of eternal life, but the means necessary for reaching it. And so um, we, we hope ultimately in, in what God has promised, which is eternal life. But um, God has, has promised that, but he's also promised the divine assistance for us to reach it, to attain that. Uh, and that's, that's a very important thing. Uh, first of all, it, it reminds us that human action, human cooperation with the divine will is essential. The God who made me without me cannot save me without me, as Augustine says. Uh, so even though we focus on God's action, we don't exclude our role, right? And, and then when we think of our role, what, what we, we're confident that he's going to give us the grace to, to, to attain eternal life. This is why we can never say that any moral teaching of the church uh, is beyond the reach of anyone to live it, okay? This is something that uh, uh, Cardinal George said years ago at a gathering of a uh, uh, kind of a pro-gay Catholic group, uh, and and he said uh, he said um, to deny that you can live chastity is to deny Christ's resurrection from the dead, which is you know, pretty strong, right? Uh, but chastity is possible uh, because we know that He will give the grace to live it, right? And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be easy. And so also with well, uh, what's an even more difficult one than chastity? Well, forgiveness, right? I mean, more people struggle with that than struggle with chastity, right? He gives us the grace for that because we need to be able to forgive in order to enter into eternal life. Um, and so we hope in the means necessary for reaching it. And then the, the, the last sort of point of uh, Jordan Oman's um, definition is the means necessary for reaching it assisted by the omnipotent help of God, okay? Uh, and where, how, how does that come to us? Well, I'll mention right now, it comes to us uh, definitively through the sacraments, right? And so here's a good thing to, to cultivate hope. As you're, as you're going up to receive Holy Communion, attach an attention to that reception of communion. Lord, by this communion, increase my hope. Or after you receive communion, go back to your pew and, and recite the act of faith, the act of hope, and the act of love. Because th those are central to the, to, to the Christian life. Living those is really the Christian life. And so we nourish those in me, Lord. You've given them to me already. Nourish them. Bring, bring them, make them stronger in me. Okay, so that's the virtue itself. I wanted to talk about, and um, I'm drawing this from Joseph Pieper, uh, two virtues that assist uh, the virtue of hope. One I've already touched on, which is humility, right? The recognition that we need this, that, that, that um, 
uh, we need this divine assistance, right? We cannot hope on our own. And so humility kind of corresponds to the not yet part, right? Uh, we've got the already and the not yet. Uh, humility corresponds to the not yet. There's another virtue um, that's a, a kind of a kind of a unusual pairing with humility, and that's magnanimity. And magnanimity literally comes from a, a magna anima, a great soulness, if you will. And uh, the magnanimous man is is you know well, for example, um, uh, Saint Maximilian Colby. I remember a couple of years ago I gave a talk on him. It was wonderful. I mean, I enjoyed it. I don't know if you did, but. But Maximilian Colby, the night before his ordination, said, you know, he prayed, I want to be a saint and a great saint, right? <laughs> That's magnanimity right there. It's, it's not shortchanging what God has promised and what God has made available to us. He does, not, uh, he does not ration his gift of the Spirit, as our Lord says. And, uh, you know, we commit very often the heresy of low expectations, um, and we— we, we preach less of a gospel than people deserve, and we ask of them less, le, less really than they can, um, than, than we should. So, uh, and, and of ourselves, we should want greatness. Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily, you know, making a lot of money, being popular, being famous, and not, not that kind of greatness, but the greatness of living an intensely intimate life with Jesus Christ. That's available to us. And, and, and magnanimity is saying, I don't just want to get by. You know, I, I, I want to I want to strive. You know that you lack magnanimity when you say, hey, listen, um, how late can I arrive at mass and still have it count? OK, OK, that is not magnanimity. Right. That is what uh, we call pusillanimity, which is kind of a smallness of soul. I love that word pusillanimity. Uh, magnanimity is is, hey, father, when are you opening the church? Um, which we get every so often. The magnanimous parishioner is the one who's there at 5.30 in the morning when I'm opening the church. They're already there. Father, is it open yet? Come on. Um, and so magnanimity is the already, right? Humility says, well, not yet. You know, I'm, 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 you know I know my, my, my smallness, right? And magnanimity says, yeah, but we're created for greatness. We're created for greatness. And, uh, and so we should want that. We should want... Uh, as great things for ourselves as, as Christ wants for us. That's magnanimity right there. Now, there is a corresponding gift of the Holy Spirit according to um, according to St. Thomas. And that gift of the Holy Spirit that corresponds to this virtue is fear of the Lord, which might be counterintuitive, right? Because you think, well, you know, um, well, why am I going to hope if I if I have fear of the Lord? If I'm afraid, why am I hoping? Well, so let, let's kind of try to unpack this a little bit. Fear of the Lord acknowledges uh, two things. First, we are not yet at our destination, right? And we're still capable of losing it, right? So fear of the Lord is, is ultimately uh, the acknowledgement that I am capable of sinning, and I, I can lose what's promised to me, because I am not yet there. Fear of the Lord also acknowledges the might of God. This is an important thing. We are not going to trust what we perceive to be weak, right? No one trusts what he thinks is weak, and we're not going to hope in what we think is weak. And so when we consider our smallness and our weakness and our capacity to sin— well, that should keep us from sin. That fear should keep us from sin, right? Uh, but then it's also that fear of the Lord is acknowledgement of, of God's, his greatness. And therefore, it, you know, acknowledging that, recognizing him as strong and as almighty, well, now we can trust him. Now we can hope in him. Because he is strong, we can hope in him. We're, we're not going to hope or have confidence in what is weak. So magnanimity... And humility, you know, working on those, striving, Lord, uh, make me a saint, make me a great one. And uh, and then humility at the same time, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, and then praying for the, that, that gift of fear of the Lord, which is, you know, that's the, the bottom rung of the gift of the fear of the, of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the one that starts them all. 
praying that that be stirred up in our souls so that we have that proper fear of the Lord. Now, let me touch on a couple of um, uh, sins against hope. All right. And, and you know, you know what these do is they, they, they separate the already and the not yet. That's basically what they do. Okay. And so the two classic ones, right, are uh, despair and presumption. And St. Thomas says presumption is not as opposed to hope as despair is. So despair, and I don't mean despondency. Okay. So if you've had a bad week, don't go to confession and say, you know, I despaired. You probably didn't. You probably just kind of gave in to a bad mood or something like that. Um, despair, when we mean despair, we mean we mean like really like choosing to think that you cannot be saved, choosing to think that either God's not good or he's not strong enough or you're not worthy. Okay. Um, and so despair looks at the already. I'm sorry, despair looks at the not yet and says, no, that's all there is. We're not yet there, and we can never get there. So what's the point? And so the catechism says, by despair, man ceases to hope for his personal salvation from God. Despair is contrary to God's goodness, to his justice, for the Lord is faithful to his promises and to his mercy. Now, that's a very interesting observation, right? Despair is contrary to God's goodness, right? But it's also contrary to his justice, because in justice, God is faithful to what he's promised. And one of the things he's promised is, if we turn to him in need, he'll answer. Now, again, let's not confuse the vice of uh, the sin of despair with the vice of despondency. There is a sin related to despair that I think we need to take account of, because it is a cause of despair. Uh, or the root of it, and that is the vice of achadia, or sloth, which is, um, when, when we think of sloth, we, we usually think of just um, being lazy, right? <laughs> you know, I didn't get out of bed. Didn't get out of bed till noon, you know, I was just lounging around. No, it is, achadia, or sloth, is something different. It is a, a sadness of the soul, a sadness about the things of God, like, I'm just so just saddened by the call to prayer or his promises that I, I just can't stir myself to, to act on it, right? It is the beginning and, and, and the root of despair, as Joseph Pieper says. And uh, I, I want to, um, I, I want to, a couple things here that, that Pieper gets, Joseph Pieper in his book, uh, uh, Faith, Hope, and Love, when he talks about despair, the reason I want to emphasize this is because this is our culture, okay? We are living in um, a culture that is dominated by achadia, by sloth. He says, um, the opposite of achadia is not industry and diligence, but magnanimity and that joy which is a fruit of the supernatural love of God. Not only can achadia and ordinary diligence exist very well together, it is even true that the sensely the senselessly exaggerated workaholism of our age is directly traceable to Achadia. In other words, I'm tired about the things of God, so I'm, you know, I'm going to pour myself into my work. And that way, I don't have to deal with him. <laughs> I, I will mute God, or I'll deafen myself to, to the call of, of God by pouring myself into my work. And then he mentions a couple of other sort of vices that are connected to this or characteristics of achadia or sloth. And achadia really, but just by the way, he says it is one who is trapped in achadia has neither the courage nor the will to be as great as he really is. Wow. He would prefer to be less great in order to thus to avoid the obligation of greatness. That, that, that's a powerful line. So, so it's basically looking at God and saying, yeah, I know you created me for glory, and your son purchased that by his death, but it's just too tough. You know, I'm just kind of saddened by it, right? And he says it's a distorted humility, right? And what are some characteristics of it? Restlessness of the mind. Restlessness of the mind, like clicking, Again and again and again and again. Next video, next next picture.
next website, whatever. The restlessness of the mind or excessive curiosity, as he calls it, an urge to pour oneself out from the peak of the mind onto many things. In other words, instead of, of making the effort to think of, of noble things, you pour yourself out into, you know, nothingness. This is really the sin of our day. And this is why hope um, is, is, is so desperately needed, right? Uh, because uh, the more achadia and sloth dominate our culture, the more that we have that restlessness of the mind, well, the, 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 the less we can hope. Another, another vice opposed. So, so uh, despair looks at just the not yet and says, well, forget about it. We're not yet there. We'll never get there. And then there's presumption. And presumption says, hey, we're already there. Just coasting from now on. Of course, you can't coast uphill, can you? So presumption, presumption says, I don't need to do anything. God has done it all already. And so I'm just going to, you know, I, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all fine. And uh, the Catechism talks about two kinds of presumption. This is very interesting. Either we presume on our own capacities. Like we think, oh, yeah, no, I got this, right? Yeah. Like a little kid, like, no, mom, dad, I can do this, right? Um, so that's one form of presumption, pre presuming that we have the capacity to do this, or presuming on God's almighty power or mercy, hoping to obtain forgiveness without conversion and glory without merit. So, um, in other words, it, it gets back to what Father Hezekiah said uh, before we started, um, refusing to give back the gift. You know, God has, has taken this initiative. He's come to us, created us, redeemed us, bestowed these gifts upon us. Uh, presumption to say, okay, I'm going to let you do anything. I'm actually not going to return anything. I'm not going to actually participate in this. I'm just going to let you do everything. Now, the reason Thomas says that presumption is less opposed to hope is because presumption emphasizes the certainty of hope. Um, and so it's kind of a distortion of hope rather than completely opposed to it. I've already touched on, I got ahead of myself, and I already touched on why the virtue of hope is so threatened in our culture. And one reason is uh, Achadia, uh, be, because um, we, the, the taproot of despair is it dominates our culture. The second reason, uh, or a, a another reason, is progressivism. By progressivism, I don't mean that um, immediately in a political uh, manner. I mean um, the faith in progress as such. Pope Benedict XVI um, links it back to, to Francis Bacon and, and, and sort of just the, the scientific revolution and, and seeing that, gosh, we're, we're so advanced now with our knowledge and our control of nature that now we can establish a utopia here. We don't have to look to heaven anymore. Never, you know, pull up the anchor, right? <laughs> Pull up the anchor because now we've got what it takes to make things happy and peaceful and, and, and fulfilling here. So Pope Benedict says, biblical hope in the kingdom of God has been displaced by hope in the kingdom of man, the hope of a better world, which would be the real kingdom of God. Okay, this mindset is, is behind Marxism, right? Is that we just we just need to tinker with things in society. We need to we need some societal engineering, and then we'll get things in the proper way, and everybody will be happy. Now we might have to eliminate millions of people to get there, but you know, hey, got to break some eggs to make an omelet, right? So, um, so this is this is sort of the the false hope of progressivism, and it's it, that is the one that Pope Benedict XVI zeroes in on. Uh, is saying that that is why there is a crisis of hope, because we have we, we've pulled up the anchor from heaven, and we said we're going to hope in things here and earth. and we see this all the time. We we've been seeing this with COVID, right? Uh, and we see it in politics all the time. And by the way, <laughs> it's both sides of the aisle to do it, right? <laughs> both sides of the aisle come come to us and say, "I can make your life," you know exactly what it should be you know you'll be you'll be completely peaceful and happy and at ease i'm like well then you're going to have entirely too much power aren't you right so this progressivism um philosophically 
has some very dangerous effects uh, politically and in society. We see this with technology too, right? I mean, here we are, you know, communicating by technology. And, uh, and so we, we keep expecting technology to solve our problems. We expected the vaccine. I mean, I mean, it's hilarious. I mean, as soon as COVID hit, they said, oh, let's get a vaccine. It'll be out within a year. Everything will be okay. And actually, you know, <laughs> I mean, the technology is, is, is not, not helping us get over that mindset. The problem is, this is a materialism, isn't it? It is limiting our um, happiness and fulfillment to material um, benefits, to, to being physically healthy, to being wealthy, and, and all of these things. So this is one of the reasons, and I think um, I agree with Pope Benedict. I typically do uh, that. This is uh, this is the reason hope is so is so threatened in our culture uh, be, because we have displaced it. And that's an important point. You know, we don't. And it, it, it harkens back to what Chesterton says. It says. Uh, when man stops believing in God, it's not that he will believe in nothing, it's that he will believe in anything. So also with hope. We are created to hope. So once we lose the real thing, it's not that we'll hope in nothing. Actually, we'll hope in some pretty twisted things. Three things to do to cultivate this, this virtue. Prayer. St. Thomas Aquinas, in one of his unfinished works, the Compendium the uh, Theologiae, he had three sections, faith, hope, charity. The one on faith centered on uh, the creed. The one on hope centered on the Lord's prayer. And he never even got to the one on charity. No, but that's, that focus on the sacraments. So prayer for St. Thomas is the interpreter of hope, the interpreter of hope. Prayer and hope uh, are ordered to one another. They're intrinsically connected. So when people stop hoping, it's because some time ago they stopped praying. Because if you don't exercise a muscle, it will atrophy. It'll still be there. It'll just be useless. Uh, and so this, ver this muscle, this spiritual muscle that's been infused into our souls is still there. But if we're not praying, then we're not exercising that muscle. So prayer, according to St. Thomas and entire tradition, that is the fundamental way of uh, cultivating hope. St. Thomas says, prayer has been prescribed by God for men in order for them to receive from him what they hope for. And so we, we hope for something, and in order for us to obtain the Lord, he's, he wants us to pray for it. Okay, so, so praying the act of hope, right? And uh, just being serious about our prayer life. Uh, when are you going to pray tomorrow? Do you know what times and what are you going to pray? Uh, you know, we priests hear this all, this all the time. People say, well, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I need to pray more. Okay, great. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, if it's not specific, it'll never happen. You know, it's like New Year's resolutions. I'm going to lose weight. Okay, well, you know, if it's not specific, it's just not going to happen. So your prayer life has to be a very specific thing. When, what, um, and, 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 the, and there has to be that perseverance there. That is really the greatest exercise of hope. Call it spiritual exercises, right? Because it builds up, um, builds up a muscle. And St. Thomas says this, he zeroes in on one very important word. Through the spirit of adoption that we have received, we can say, Abba, Father. To show us that it is necessary to pray in this hope, the Lord began his prayer with the word, Father. This simple word prepares man's heart to pray with sincerity, to obtain what he hopes for. So, uh, there's this, uh, St. Jose Maria had a mystical experience in the streets of Madrid, and he was just overcome with a sense of being a, a son of God. <laughs> the story is he just kind of wandered through Madrid just saying Abba the whole time, <laughs> right? Well, that's good prayer. Right. And so that one word, you know, that that our father who 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 desires good for us. Second, memory, exercising your memory. I heard a great line from Jordan Peterson. I'm sure some of you watched him or heard of him. He's a very interesting man. Uh, and he says that, you know, people make this mistake of, of thinking that the memory is just about thinking about the past. It's not. That's just called reminiscence or nostalgia. He says the memory, the purpose of the memory is to extract out from the past lessons 
to structure the future. This is what we see in uh, the prayer of ancient Israel. Uh, the Psalms, especially Psalm, uh, Psalms 104 to 107, Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for his good, his mercy endures forever, goes through the whole history of Israel. And the refrain is, his mercy endures forever. So what are they doing? They're exercising their memory saying, yeah, he's already proven his goodness to us, his power, his mercy, his love. He's, he's shown it. We need to remember it. And this is why the prophets, you know, we think the prophets are always coming and saying, hey, this is what's going to happen. No, actually, the prophets spent most of their time saying, this is what happened. This is what the Lord did for you. <laughs> and you're not, <laughs> you're not living according to it. The prophets were more about remember than, um, than what, what's going to come. And of course, this is what we do at the Mass, right? It is the memorial sacrifice. Uh, that, that, and, and, um, and, and the Mass is, what, what is the Mass? The Mass is the making present of something from the past with a view to the future. So the Mass is the perfect place to pray for hope. Well, per perfect place to pray for anything. And finally, acts of thanksgiving. So before you go to bed tonight, think about all of the good things you've received today. And that includes the crosses that you encountered today and the challenges and the setbacks. Uh, think of all of those things that were occasions for you to grow in grace, to grow closer to God. We hope in the future to the degree that we give thanks for the past. Okay, Because the more we thank God for the past, the more confident we are for what uh, um, he will give in the future. Because what he has given us in the past is a pledge of, of, of what he wants to give us in, in, in the future. So an act of thanksgiving, before you make your examination of conscience tonight, make an act of thanksgiving, okay? Uh, blessed Solanus Casey, he has this great line, thank God ahead of time, which is kind of sneaky, right? Lord, I thank you that you're going to do this good thing for me. <laughs> but I think that 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 advice, you know, thank God ahead of time, kind of gets at, at, at the connection here that thanking God for his goodness is already preparing us to trust in what he wants to give us uh, in the future. Uh, and it spurs us on to um, shake off that achadia, shake off that sloth, and, uh, and strive for those great gifts that he's given us. And hope seeks those, and hope is certain of those, and inspires that strife. Thank you. God bless. Wow. Thank you so much, Father Scalia. Many of us on screen are giving you kind of a silent applause here <laughs> for that wonderful presentation. Um, not only a powerful reflection on our society, and certainly, I think, um, at least uh, many of the things you said resonated with, with myself in my own prayer life and things that I'm certainly going to contemplate and implement starting tonight with the uh, things. The to act of Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if it's okay with you, I think we'd still love to um, have some time for Q&A. So if you have questions for Father Scalia. All right. Well, it looks like we have a number of questions coming in. This question coming in from Robin, but it echoes a few other questions that have come in. And Robin is asking, Father Scalia, could you please clarify the relationship between the theological virtue of hope and the requirement of trust? Robin says, as a convert, I've noticed that Catholics tend to speak of hope in cases where a Protestant might be thinking right. of the need for trust. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It's a good observation. And um, we do, we do, um, I, I, I think that the, that's, a, that's a fair kind of equivalent, right, is, is that uh, trusting in God. Um, now, by faith is a kind of trust, right? Because by way of faith, we trust uh, what he has revealed, right? We, we assent, and so we, we trust our intellect to what God has revealed. By way of hope, we, we trust in what he has promised and, uh, and, sh and shape our striving according to what he has promised. So, so yeah, I mean, um, I, I think trust, and it probably is translated that 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 way um, in, in certain where perhaps in the Psalms, where where some translation might have hope, another might have have trust, but it's it's a fair equivalent. Trust might, to some ears, be too secular, right? And so, you know, for that reason, we might use hope more. 
Yeah, Ahmed, do you have a question? I saw your hand up. You can go ahead. Yeah, uh, thanks, Elsie. Uh, hello, Father. Hello. Uh, I know um, St. Thomas Aquinas, he said that like all, all actions are directed toward an end and like we all seek happiness. Is it like an inherent hope that everybody has that they're trying to like realize by their act? Does that make sense? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a hope. I think, I think it would be a desire. And that's what, it, you know, the the part of the catechism that I quoted, I think it's 1818, says that that, that hope corresponds to the, to the desire. So what you just described is accurate, that we all have this desire, right? So St. Augustine's famous line, uh, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Uh, th th that's a great expression of that desire that we all have. Hope corresponds to that desire uh, and, and says that, you know, that desire is not misplaced. That desire um, can be fulfilled and and uh, and will be, right? It, it gives a certainty to that. Yeah, so yeah, paragraph 1818 in the Catechism. The virtue of hope responds to the aspiration to happiness, which God has placed in the heart of every man. So, so yeah, you're you're right that there that this aspiration to happiness that we all have, hope hope kind of responds and kind of you know hooks into it, if you will, and and confirms it. Says yes, you you are right to aspire to happiness. And here's here's the great news: um, you're already you know you've got an anchor in heaven already that's drawing you to it. Great. We have a question coming in from. Um... An anonymous attendee. Um, this person is saying that they they have heard people in the church say, "quote The best you can hope for is purgatory," end quote, <laughs> um, which might be um, someone trying to not fall into presumption. But but how could you respond to those who are seeming to discourage magnanimity? They are trying not to fall into presumption, but they are failing to be magnanimous. The, the best you can hope for is is purgatory. Come on, no. We've got plenty of saints that, you know, uh, I mean, and 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 we see so many saints. Like uh, a, a friend and I were talking about um, the way Mother Teresa looked uh, towards the end of her life. You know that 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 her body was just kind of like hanging on, and her soul just kept like striving. In John Paul II, I think the same the same way. So you you already get a hint of this greatness and this glory. Uh, when the saints are in this world. So, no, the best we can hope for is not just purgatory. I mean, no, we, we, we should hope for heaven, right? Boy, I mean, and that's, you know what, that's selling God short. That is selling God short, and, and, it's, and it's, it's making him to be, a, you know, that's not a very good dad, is it? Like, you know, hey, okay, kid, I'll give you purgatory. That's, that's all you're going to get. <laughs> no, a loving father wants to give the best that he can give. Yes, amen to that. Um, Deacon Bill, why don't you go ahead with your question? Purgatory is not a, purgat uh, a permanent state. Uh, nobody stays in purgatory. Right. Uh, everybody who goes in, there's only one door out, and that's into heaven. Yeah, no, that's and that's an important point. Uh, right. That, purgatory, you're going to get to heaven. Yeah, if you go to purgatory, you're going to get to heaven. I, I took it to mean that... Uh, you know, uh, you shouldn't even hope to die and go directly to heaven. Uh, that the best you can do is purgatory. Well, no, that ain't bad. <laughs> purgatory ain't bad, right? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm shooting, I'm shooting for heaven, but relying on purgatory. How's that? Bob, you can go ahead and unmute yourself. I think we have time for one more. Uh, yes, thank you, uh, Father Scalia, for your talk tonight. Your talks are always good, and uh, I was hoping. Because as you were talking about magnanimity or mag magnanimity, yeah, however you say it, magnanimity. Uh, I, was, I, I was thinking of Matthew five forty eight, uh, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and I know that means in our telos. Uh, but I was wondering maybe tonight, as part of a prayer, if you could give me some tips on how to meditate on that in context with the rest of uh, of you know Jesus's sermon. Um, med med meditate on th on that line in particular. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, just just how does that how does how does be perfect in your telos fit in to the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, it, obviously it's it's our end, but but I mean, is there something there? Any tips you can give me on how to think that through? Um, I mean, you know, I once heard it. I heard it translated, and I don't know if the, I I don't think this is accurate, but it, it, I think it's theologically helpful. 
um, you must be made perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay. Right. Yeah, because if we misunderstand that line, we become Pharisees, right? Okay, I'm going to go be perfect, right? And we'll either become, we'll either despair or we'll become Pharisees. Um, and, and so you must be perfect. I, I think that, that yeah, in the telos, uh, and it's it's a hint of the striving, but it's also, um, I think it's a promise of his grace. And I think that's the way we have to understand it. I, I think a very important thing uh, throughout the Sermon on the Mount that is often neglected is how constantly our Lord talks about our father, because your father, you know, um, right. and, and so the perfection is, is desiring to be like our father, right. And desiring to be with him and desire, desiring, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I see this at the parish all the time. Like, you know, uh, a man, man's walking into church and his son is walking behind him, like the exact same, you know, walk and the mannerisms and everything like that. Uh, a child should, should desire, uh, desire that. So um, I, I think that 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 line is to break us of of aiming too low, right? And and saying that uh, you have a father in heaven and he wants you to be like him and he will bring it about. Thank you so much, Father Scalia. Please know that you will certainly be in all of our prayers this week leading up to your 25th anniversary. Oh, thank you. Yes, thank, thank you. you so much. If you could conclude us in prayer, we'd be so grateful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God and Father, we give you thanks for pouring into our hearts the gifts of faith, hope, and love. We ask you to strengthen these virtues within us, especially the virtue of hope, that we may be for the world an example of those who are confident and desirous of the gifts that you give in the next world, that we may live already as those whose citizenship is in heaven that we may allow that anchor, which is Christ ascended to be at your right side, allow that anchor to draw us ever closer to you in our thoughts, in our desires, and in our actions. And ask your blessing upon all who are participating here, Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.